Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. As always, support those that support us. Keep wins in the sale of the, the Corolla Pirate Ship. And uh, hey, check out drdrew.com while you're at it. I put up some great articles there. <laughs> Things that interest us on cancer as well as how we got into this opium crisis. We take it all the way back into prehistory and bring it forward, and you can see exactly how we got into this mess. And the most recent article is what we're doing about it, so please do check that out. Get on the contact list. Send me your questions. I'll be happy to answer them over at the This Life podcast. Check out the family of podcasts there, and uh, get on my Instagram page if you don't mind. I'm going to do some live videos there at Dr. Drew Pinsky to uh, – you know, do Q&A and that kind of thing. I'm trying to find an environment to do question and answer that's live. And I, right now, that's where I'm going. Let me bring my guest in. It's Eric Jonas. Eric is um, – how should I describe you, Eric? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things about you, and I know you don't know why you're here, but I'll explain. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I guess I'd say I'm a, a, a neuroscientist and a computer scientist kind of trying to decide right. which hat to wear. Good. And, and I think of you as a neuroscientist. I heard you on, I don't know if it was Econ Talk or uh, Rationally Speaking or something, all these nerdy podcasts that I listen to. What, were you, what have you done in the last maybe couple of years? So, yeah, that would have been, it would have been Julia Galef's uh, Rationally Speaking. Yeah, Rationally Speaking. And you guys discussed what there? Um, everything ranging from kind of some, some recent work that I've done on trying to better understand um, what it will really mean to actually understand the brain, right. um, all the way to kind of some of the ramifications for, for things like AI and science and medicine. Right. And, and those, those two general headings obviously interest me greatly. One is you, you were sort of equating, I think you wrote an article on microprocessors and sort of the whole engineered electronic system compared to the biological system and how, how different they are. And one of the things that drive me, drives me crazy about a lot of the AI conversations is they miss the fact that the brain is embedded in a body and that there's an autonomic nervous system that's deeply informing what our brain does and intuits. Uh, and, uh, and it's not and, – and biologists think very differently than, than engineers because it's a different kind of system. And then the other, the other issue is, uh, of course, how the brain functions. So which would you like to get into first? Um, let's start with how the brain functions, because right. we can kind of, I think that's easier to spread out from. All right, go ahead. Where, where should we start? Right. So, I mean, right. So, I'm, I'm actually, I, I'm trained as both a, a neuroscientist and a, a computer scientist. And, and, you know, one of the things, the, the, the part of neuroscience I was really interested in was this question of, you know, how does the activity of, of cells, of the neurons in your brain, give rise to kind of behavior? How does it give rise to learning and memory and cognitive thought processes? And this is, of course, this incredibly interesting area of research. And, and, and I started off in graduate school working on actually kind of building machines to let us kind of read that data, right, directly from neural systems. And I kind of got distracted by this AI thing a bit. Um, well, hey, hang on. Let's let's really... let me let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna interview up a little bit and sort of break things down a little bit as we go. So you, you developed. You got a PhD in neuroscience from MIT. You have electrical engineering and computer sciences from a master's at MIT. And, and your basic science, your your uh, bachelor's was in electrical engineering and brain and cognitive science. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And too much time in school. Uh, well, I don't know. And, and what, <laughs> what what was this machine you built? Uh, tell me about that. Well, so right. Um, you know, the, the brain is, is really fascinating because you have all these cells in there and they, they communicate basically electrically, right? At the end of well, the day... Well, electrochemically, the, right? It's a, that's a different right. thing. So, so yeah. Go ahead. Between, between cell communication is all chemical, but most of the kind of um, computation that we see happening, especially on kind of rapid timescales, is, of course, all these like membrane dynamics, right? It's yeah. all very electrical. Yeah. And... and, and but what's neat is that when a, when a cell fires, right, when it triggers one of these kind of very digital action potentials, you can actually measure that. If you stick a wire very close to a neuron, kind of you can pick up that little blip. And so we were, you know, I was in a lab that had pioneered a lot of the what are called electrophysiology techniques, where you basically take tiny wires and get them kind of very close to neural cells to try and measure what those cells are doing as an animal like a rat or a mouse kind of runs around doing some sort of task. When was this? Um, when was this? 
Um, this would have been in kind of 2006 era. Okay. okay. Keep going. Um, um, which, which, which kind of feels like ancient history. Right, but, um, right. um, the, the, because the interesting thing is, of course, cells, no cell in your brain is sacred, right? You have, you have literally, you know, 80 billion plus neurons in your brain. And what really matters is how they interact, how they work together. Right. And so what really, from a neuroscience perspective, you know, if you want to understand how these, these cognitive processes are happening, you really want to watch kind of lots of cells simultaneously. So we were working on, at the time, kind of building hardware that would let us watch, say, 100 or 200 or 300 cells kind of at once, um, all in this area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is largely uh, believed to be responsible for kind of uh, learning and memory. Right. So uh, whatever that means. One, one way or right, another exactly. conceived. One way or another conceived, yes. Um, and so we were, and, 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 but along the way, you know, that project, I mean, I was kind of the only graduate student working on, um, working on the project at a time. And I started realizing that, well, we weren't really making great use of a lot of the data that we already had. And that's what kind of sent me down this, this AI path was, was realizing that, you know, um, we, we were, we needed to build better machines to, to get the data. Sure. But even the data we already had. Um, a lot of the analysis we were doing was basically being done by kind of staring at it, right? You know, the, this image of a scientist poring over figures and whatnot is actually not that far from the truth. And I was like, well, surely we have kind of algorithms and, and computers that can help us figure this stuff out better. And that, that, that kind define of... Define again, define the, again the, this stuff. What do you mean by this stuff? Um, well, so imagine if you're watching the activity of... Um, a large number of neurons like interacting, right? You want to figure out what's going on. A kind of nice analogy might be, imagine if you were watching um, kind of a busy intersection, right? Like Shibuya Crossing in Tokyo, where you have like hundreds of people crossing kind of every time the lights change. And you want to figure out, well, what's really going on here? Because maybe you can't actually see the traffic lights. So all you see is kind of these individual people, and sometimes they all kind of move synchronously, right? They all do this thing, and then sometimes they don't. And so you really want to understand from watching this kind of collective behavior what's happening behind the scenes. Okay. And that's really how we wanted to understand what these neural systems were doing. Okay, keep going. And so the, but, but it's hard, right? And it's hard when um, the systems are noisy, you don't see all the data, you know, the, the, you don't really even know what's actually supposed to be happening, right? A lot of this, these discoveries are kind of very serendipitous. Um, and so I started working on kind of um, algorithms to, you know, ways of, ways of getting the computer to find the patterns in the neuroscience data, right? That was really the, and, you know, of course, as an arrogant, you know, kid in my mid-20s, I was like, well, if the computer can make the discoveries, I'll get all the papers. <laughs> um, and um, that led to, you know, me getting very into um, kind of the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence, and we even kind of um, I got somewhat distracted and ended up starting and, and, and selling a company while while in graduate school that, that did all of that. Um, but yeah, that was that was kind of the genesis. So, so in the course, let's go back to brain function. Do have you? Does your gestalt on brain functioning is it common in sort of everyday discourse, or do you have a different sort of understanding of how the brain integrates and functions? Um, I mean, I think that that the. I mean, it, right. The interesting thing about doing kind of the, the systems neuroscience that we were doing, right, yeah. um, especially in, in kind of organisms like um, mice or rats or whatnot, is that, um, you know, the, it actually doesn't inform human behavior all that much, right? I mean, we're, we're really studying much simpler systems. Well, we're, still, we're, of, we're really working on the sea slug, right? That's our main system. Well, Right. And so, in fact, they're even simpler organisms, right? Some people work on aplasia, the, the sea cucumber. Some people work on, on what's called C. elegans, which is this tiny little worm that has 302 neurons. Um, C. C. elegans, we have the entire system worked out, and yet we still don't understand how it works. Exactly. So that's, that's the amazing thing, right? For, for, for C. elegans, because, you know, the worm is so simple that basically everyone is kind of a clone of every other one, right? So it's like you've got a, a million identical organisms that you can, you can kind of work with and study here. And, um, their neuro, nervous systems are wired up almost exactly the same. And so it's, it's this very nice model system and it only has 302 neurons, right? And we know them all. We know them all. We know how they interact. We know them all, right? They all have names. They, and we still can't really simulate 
what the organism is actually doing. And again, right. it doesn't do all that much. It like swims to food. It sometimes mates. Um, very much, very much like an undergraduate. Um, <laughs> That's and funny. So, so what happens is, um, so we, but we were studying a kind of organisms with like a hundred million neurons, right? Which were much more complicated. And so that's part of, that's part of the desire to kind of. Well, you're going, you're going, kind of, you're going all the way to mammals, which is a gigantic leap, right? Which is an incredible leap. Well, and of course the, I mean, there's always this tension, right? Because on one hand, um, it is probably the case that, well, with something like C. elegans or like, you know, um, 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 a sea slug or whatever, will understand some very fundamental properties about the nervous system, yeah. right? Yeah. But when we study mammals, there's a, it's much easier to kind of create a disease model, right, for a rat or a mouse. You can, you can try and create a disease model of, when I say model, I mean kind of, you can, you can create an animal that has kind of a disease that looks very similar to the same one that a human would have. Well, and that's kind of try and through, reverse engineers what ha- what's through, happening. Through knockout, like genetic knockouts or something? Through through genetic knockout, yeah. we're very much the, the state of the art technology. When I was when I was doing right. this, now there's of course much more complicated and advanced technologies people can use, like CRISPR. Um, but yeah, so so the the you're you're always kind of you're always trying to figure out. Well, what you'd really like to do, you know, is 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 get something as especially if you're clinically focused, get something as close to the actual treat organism you're trying to treat as possible. But if you're trying, you know, there's so much added complexity there, right? It's yeah. like, you know, you'd, you'd really like to uh, fix the space shuttle. Right. But the reality is that it's a lot easier to fix a bunch of bicycles. But, but to be fair, a, a lot of the, the leap forwards in understanding of physiology and medicine have been through looking at pathology. That's how you learn normal function. You look where there's a specific problem, this, this whatever, injury or developmental issue. And that tells you something about what happens, what should be happening that isn't happening. Exactly. And even the area of the brain that we studied, the hippocampus, it was, it was primarily of interest because there was this famous patient, H.M., um, from the 50s who had, he had bad epilepsy. And so they did a, a, a surgery that removed his medial temporal lobe, so mostly his hippocampus. And they discovered when he came out of the surgery that he no longer had the ability to form new memories. Right. And this was this first kind of suggestion that, in fact, maybe memory systems were actually made of parts. Maybe there was a part for long term storage or a part for new memory acquisition. And maybe the hippocampus was actually intimately involved in that process. And that led to kind of, um, you know, 40 years of, of, of neuroscientists studying the hippocampus, which ultimately um, resulted in, in uh, the Mosers winning the Nobel Prize for, for how the hippocampus works a few years ago. Did you were you going down that same path? I mean, we like to think we were, but um, the, the technique they got famous for was actually invented by my advisor at MIT. So, so he kind of developed the technology, and they went on to kind of do all of this work. There's always, you know, scientists are always very, uh, 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 they always have stories that, that their view of how things should have unfolded. But right. yes. It should have been me. But going back to the Tokyo traffic and getting back to relating these what should we call them? Macro scale flows? What do we call them? Yeah, that's that's totally reasonable. Yeah. Large scale kind of dynamic behavior. Yes, uh, behavior gets people confused. You're talking about behavior of neurons, right? Right. Large. Lar- yeah. Exactly. So large scale. I mean, this is where the computer analogies start to become helpful, right? Yeah. Whatever the the the, the whatever your brain is kind of doing behind the scenes. Right, you don't really see that. What you see is, you know, you get up, you go to work, you 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 pet the dog and whatnot. It's it's almost as if there's kind of some some hidden code that's running behind there, and we're trying to figure out what that code is. And where is that? Where is where where are you with that? Where is it leading you? Well, so that's the interesting point, right? So so part of the part of what got me back into kind of um, um, academic science was the Obama administration announced this brain initiative. They said, you know, we're going to literally put billions of dollars into trying to record from more and more neurons, right? We know that kind of we're only seeing a tiny fraction of what's out there right now, right? But we basically, all of, including the equipment we were developing, was basically like the earliest telescopes. You could see maybe one or two or three stars well, right? But that was about it. So people were putting in all this technology, all this effort to develop kind of new recording technologies. And I thought, well, there's a real opportunity here to, again, go back and try and develop these sorts of algorithmic techniques to understand how the brain works. But I became a little bit disillusioned because I said, you know, 
are the techniques we're developing actually capable of extracting the kind of insight from this data that we want, right? Yeah. And it's hard because we don't really know how the brain works, right? right? So in some sense, we're trying to, you know, we don't, it's, it's, it would be kind of like trying to reverse engineer, you know, an alien spacecraft when we really didn't understand what it was even supposed to do, right? Right. And, and so that's what led us to this idea that, well, maybe we should at least, maybe we should try doing neuroscience or something that kind of looks like neuroscience on a system that we already understand really well. And of course, the computing systems that we understand really well are, are, are microprocessors, or the devices in kind of our, our iPhones and our laptops. Um, and so we went through and said, well, what's a very simple microprocessor? So we went all the way back to the 70s before I was born and um, tried to basically do reverse engineering through the lens of neuroscience for the original Atari, right, for the Atari 2600 and the processor inside of that, just to see if, you know, given where we are today, if we had all of the data. The nice thing about a processor is that you can observe everything inside it, right? You can, you can see all the data. Um, and so we'd say, okay, if we can do that, can we use our algorithmic techniques? Do our, do our mathematical techniques let us figure out what's going on? And, of course, the answer was no, right? The answer is, in fact, there's a tremendous gap right now such that even if we had all the data about how neural, about what's going on inside a brain, we still don't really have the mathematical or the analytical techniques to figure out what that means. Well, go, which go, is back, both an go, exciting back to, go back to the Atari. So, so the, you describe that same phenomenology through that model, the lens of that model. Perfect. Yeah. Great. So, the, the, your, your, a microprocessor is made up of transistors, yeah. right? So, it has, it has roughly the Atari, uh, um, uh, MOS, the chip inside of it had roughly 3,500 transistors. The transistor is sort of, walk- uh, sort of off on digital electronic media. Exactly. It's just a single digital switch, yeah. right? Yeah. So, already that transistor is, you know, a million times simpler than any cell in your brain, right? right? So, it's already But, but much, isn't that, much the, isn't that right there? Your problem? I, to me, because I'm so glad you said that, because to me, that's the problem. I, I spent a lot of time studying neurons when I was growing up as an undergraduate, and they're, they're almost infinitely complex. And then Eric Kandel added in all what's going on in the periphery in terms of RNA modulation of the, of the physiology in the periphery of the neuron. It becomes almost infinitely complex to look at a single neuron. Right, exactly. And so the, the – and, and, right, and I, I, I think you're, you're – I think we're in real kind of vehement agreement here that even the tiny units, right, like the smallest kind of individual unit that we can imagine studying with these tools in a brain is already wildly complicated, right? right? And so why do we think that kind of just by watching more of them, we're going to somehow magically figure it out? Well, I'll tell you where, where when I stand back and try to simplify the code, so to speak, isn't there something to be said for firing rates of cells? Couldn't you say something meaningful if you looked at individual cell firing rates and maybe their downstream effects and those firing rates or, or something in that zone? Because that feels transistor-like in terms – it's not so, – it's, go ahead. So And people do, right? Yes. So, so, so we, in fact, we know that lots of, of, of neurons, especially in kind of you know, early sensory systems like audition and vision – Right, use these kind of rate codes, right? The faster the cell fires, like the bigger the number it's trying to communicate, right? And or something. Course, I, I think that's already, you're, that's, yeah, you're already getting a, you're I, saying I too am, much. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am, my apologies. Um, no, so the, the hope is that there's some information communicated in that firing rate. Right. These right. days we think that, that a lot more um, information is being communicated kind of by the relative timing between different cells. Right. So the timing, fact that kind well, of timing Sorry, between timing between. What does that mean? Right. So imagine you have kind of three neurons, right? Yeah. yeah. A, B, and C. Yeah. Right. Um, what matters is not necessarily how fast A or B or C are firing individually, but what really matters is um, did A fire before B? If I'm just going to look at a tiny little temporal window here, okay. right? Just kind of yeah. like, oh, did A fire first or did B fire first? Okay. Or did C fire first? Yep. Or was there some kind of joint pattern across all of those, right? Which, so which is really probably be- the more common thing, right? Some sort of feedback and presynaptic inhibition and modulation and all that stuff goes on. Between exactly. Three so cells. there's all this. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. So there's all this complicated physiology. So instead of it looking kind of like a, a trumpet where you're, where, you know, it's just one loud thing playing at some particular right. tone at some particular rate, right. it's really much more like a piano where the, the in this case, the, the piano player has, you know, eight hands or something. Yeah. Right. There's, there's kind of all of these chords that are happening. And the pedal. At all these times. And the pedal. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really like a beautiful organ. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Have you modeled anything after the piano mathematically? Well, so in fact, um, a lot of the techniques, so if, if we turn to kind of techniques people are applying today and where the, the research actually lives, um, some of the same techniques people use for, mathematical techniques people use for music transcription, right? So you hear some song, you know, and you'd like to have the computer figure out kind of what was, um, what were the notes that were being played at a given time, right? Yeah. Um, also apply to, or apply to these sorts of neural systems, right? Where they're, what they're really trying to figure out, you can imagine that they're trying to kind of decode the sheet music of some part of the brain. Right. Right. That makes sense to me. Um, but it is all very harsh. It's, 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 I got a lot, of, a lot of criticism from friends about this paper because they were like, why are you just hating on everything we're doing? It's like, no, I'm saying that like, what we're doing is so hard and so important that we really should be spending more time on it. Who, who, who are you being harsh upon? Well, so there's, there's one way. So the, the title of our paper was called Could a Neuroscientist Understand a Microprocessor? Um, and that is that is hearkening back to this paper written in 2001 by um, a biologist who asked, you know, could a biologist fix a radio? And this, the guy who wrote that original paper, Yuri Lesnik, was was kind of very disillusioned with the way that molecular biologists, so people who study the kind of biochemistry and and and, and insides of cells, were um, not being very quantitative about the, what they were doing. And he's like, look, he's like an engineer knows everything about a radio, right? Yeah, they they yeah. can tell you exactly what every part does, and they have precise definitions. And we're, as biologists, we're just doing all these kind of hand-wavy explanations, right? We're, we're, we're drawing these boxes with these arrows, and we don't really know what any of it means, and we're never really being quantitative. And so he was arguing that kind of, and a trend that has certainly changed over the past, say, 20 years, but, but he, was, he was arguing quite forcefully that, you know, um, even something as simple as a radio, which is, of course, much simpler than a cell, would be kind of beyond the level of quantitative sophistication possessed by biologists at the time. Well, to be and fair, I think, that's kind of, I think that's true. However, biologists done well are really working in the world of probabilities, right, and sets rather than digital sorts of mathematical mm-hmm. principles. So that's true. But, of course, that makes everything even harder. I, I, right? I, I get like it, the, but that's the, a different kind of math. And, and so well, the, I hope the, we're doing it's not, that. It's not that different of a kind of math. I mean, in okay. fact, all of the math that underlies how, like, radio communication happens is all also kind of crouched in the language of probability. Yeah, well, see, I didn't know um, that. I didn't know that. Um, in fact, another criticism we got about the paper was they were like, well, why do you think these neuroscience techniques would even work on a processor, right, on something that feels so different from a biological system? Yeah. But, of course, my response to that was often that, well, we call these things neuroscience techniques because we all learned them in our neuroscience classes, but they were all invented by physicists and electrical engineers 50 years ago, mm. right? We're just yeah. borrowing these mathematical techniques here to do this kind of analysis. So in some sense, there's something fundamental about that. Are you, are you, I, I'm thinking about Antonio Damasio's work. Are you working with his stuff at all? Or That's sort of more wiring research, right? So that's that's very focused on wiring exactly, yeah. and, and and in fact I have done some. Um, one of the actually the first paper I did with with my my collaborator Conrad Cording, who's who's now at Penn on neuroscience. When I kind of came back to to academia, was specifically looking at these kind of uh, connectomics type questions, right? I think it's actually kind of for many reasons it's an incredibly exciting time for a lot of neuroscience because we're going to finally start having some of these wiring diagrams. Well, um, and, 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 and I was thinking about the combination of the wiring diagram with the observation of the traffic, so to speak, and back to your J- Japanese model, the traffic heading down these, these, these pathways. Exactly. But the, 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 and, and, and the hope is that, in fact, people have already made kind of, you know, groups like um, 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 uh, Davi Box Group at... Uh, Janelia at the Howard Hughes Research Campus outside of D.C. have already made kind of real actual discoveries about how these systems work and compute by combining kind of observations of the activity along with kind of 
the the the, the roadmap or the, the 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 schematic of how these systems are put together. And and what has your model taught us? Um, so we were very interested in this this on the the, the connectomic side. We were very interested in this question of um, just figuring out how many cell types are there, right? So biologists are 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 no different from, I mean, I guess we both have degrees in biology, but biologists are no different than, than, than your average listener in that they, they, they presumably like to organize things, right? Yeah. Most of us kind of very naturally categorize things. And that means that one question biologists often have is kind of how many different types of cells are there in, say, a brain, right? Or even in a simpler system like, say, your retina, right? Your retina does a little bit of computation. And so you can imagine, you know, asking this question, um, how many different cell types are there and what are those types? And of course, scientists have been doing this for a long time. They did this all the way back to, you know, Ramonica Hall was the Spanish neuroanatomist at the turn of the uh, 20th century who, you know, was looking under a microscope and noticed that, in fact, neurons have different shapes. And figured right? out and the, so the Purkinje cells. From, from, Exactly. So, so in fact, he was studying like amazing structures, like like Purkinje cells and the cerebellum and whatnot. And they they all have these kind of they, they they look like radically different types of trees, like you might see in 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 Golden Gate Park. And and so so there's this question of kind of um, most of the when a biologist says I think it's a or no, a neuroscientist says I think this is a cell type X. Kind of how are they making that distinction? Because of course, so many of these cell types are just things that we've kind of guessed. We're like, well, these two look different. We're going to call this one A and this one B. And so we were trying to develop algorithms that would look at the data and kind of without any bias, figure out automatically kind of how many different cell types there are. What, what, right? Because you what'd, you come, what'd you come to? Well, so for the, the retina data set we found... Um, just in we retina. Just in the retina. So this is, this is just looking in the retina. Oh, my right? God. This analog level of computation. And you think about that right? as such a... You think of that as such a structured, layered you know, sort of fixed sort of uh, a set. But go ahead, how many? Exactly, exactly. And in fact, that's where, so the retina was where we had the first of this kind of connectomics data, right? This yep. group um, jointly out of MIT and, and Germany had, had, had developed this data set of only a thousand cells. And we were like, well, look, just looking at the connectivity, we can kind of uniquely identify um, 13 cell types mm. in this data, right? And of course, we know that there are more than that, right? So we were clearly missing something. But what we found was the cell types that we were identifying were generally kind of generalizations mm. of the existing ones. So at the very least, our algorithm would say, well, this is type A. And in reality, it was made up of A1 and A2 and A3 and these sorts of things. But, but the hope is that by pushing forward in this direction, we can kind of turn a lot of these kind of neuroanatomy questions into kind of very concrete algorithmic questions, right? We can kind of stop this thing where where people argue in the middle of a conference, is this cell type A or cell type B? Because we'll actually have kind of code that will say, well, no, this is this is X or this is Y. I'm getting overwhelmed when I think about this. <laughs> right? Sorry. Right? Don't you get overwhelmed? Just, just We're just talking about the neuroanatomy of cell types. I, I wonder- oh, it's, it's so exciting, though, right? I mean, the, the downside is that, that this makes me think that, you know, Many of our clinical discoveries are still basically going to come through like serendipity, right? We're still probably a ways off yeah. from kind of a, a, a quantitative uh, uh, clinical neuroscience. The way we like the way cardiology is so kind of quantitative and well known. Um, but that was actually one of my motivations back in the day for even starting down this path was this notion that you know. Um, at the time when I was kind of halfway through graduate school, my, my mom developed cancer uh-huh. and I was like, well, I would really like to have kind of my research have the opportunity at least to have kind of clinical impact on a shorter than let's say 50 year time scale. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the nice thing about doing things like uh, uh, kind of algorithmic and AI development is that in fact you can, you can kind of get out there in the real world much more quickly than say like synaptic physiology in a rat. Right. All right, everybody, Pluto TV, leading streaming television service. Watch over 100 channels, thousands of movies on demand, completely free. Pluto, Pluto never asks you for a credit card. They don't even have you sign up. You just go. In fact, I suggest you go right now to your app store and download the Pluto TV app. It's easy. It's completely legal. And you watch all your favorite TV shows. While I'm talking to you, by the time I'm done speaking, you will have their menu scrolling in front of you. You won't believe what's there, how much. You can download Pluto TV free on all your favorite devices 
today or now, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation, and anywhere else you stream. What are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. Hey, you might like The Good Life with Stevie and Cezanne on Podcast One. Uh, the YouTube and blogging power couple uh, inspire minds, captivate listeners through their intimate stories and powerful conversations. Check out The Good Life with Stevie and Cezanne every Wednesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you're looking to buy a car, you're probably being inundated with terms like MSRP and things like invoice, list price, dealer price. I, I don't know. I think it's meant to confuse you. What you want to know is how much do you have to pay all in? Well, that's why True Car came up with True Price. So you can know exactly what you'll pay before you get to the dealer, including fees and accessories. That, again, before you get there, True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, and they'll do it all from the comfort of your home. And you know a True Price is a great price because True Car shows you what other people pay for the same car you want, and the certified dealers know this, so they set the True Price competitively so they can win your business. You look at that scattergram, you learn about your car, you lock it in, and you're going to lock in a true price for an actual piece of inventory on a true car certified dealer's lot. So it's very easy, very simple. You can be very confident. When you're ready to buy new or used, don't forget they have used cars as well. Visit True Car, and you'll enjoy that more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Let's go back to the. Let's go back again. We're stepping back, you know, sort of more, higher, higher, higher levels of macroscopy, if we call it such, and talk about AI for a second. Uh, I, to me, AI per se and brain are different things. They just are. Human intelligence and AI are just different. But uh, how are they different in your mind? And are we going to get close one to the other? Great. So it's actually it's it's uh, you know this is this is an audio interview, so you can't see my kind of look of, of visceral disgust every time I have to say AI. Oh, good. Uh, so for for most of us, um, we're very many many people in the the kind of computer science or, or machine learning community are feel like a lot of these a lot of the notions of AI have been kind of radically oversold, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. most of what our machine learning technology does these days is if you show it a bunch of, if you show it a bunch of things, it can kind of find some patterns, yeah. right? And that's yeah. important and that's hard. And, and that means that, for example, you know, the, the, we have much better, um, we're much better at classifying pictures as having a cat or a dog or an airplane in them than we used to be. But that's because we basically built a little, we built some code and we showed it a million different images and kind of it figured out what the difference was between a cat or a dog, yeah. right? Yeah. And that feels very far away from the kind of, um, inductive and deductive yep. reasoning that yep. we see even toddlers exhibit. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, so we're still very far away from um, we're still very far away from the matrix. We're still kind of very far away from from a lot of these kind of um, dystopian scenarios, or even scenarios where I think I would feel comfortable putting a lot of the technology we have today into mission critical systems. Oh, right. You know, everyone's really excited about like replacing radiologists with algorithms. Oh, and I that's, think a, that's a actually, huge mistake. Huge mistake. It's it's. You know, it, it may come eventually, but like the technology is, 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 I'm very skeptical that the technology is, is, is available right now, right? And in fact, you know, a lot of the examples that we see of these systems kind of breaking um, are often, you know, they're, you could imagine that um, if you had a, a human radiologist and you train them on um, CT images or whatnot from one, from one machine, if you then take them to a different machine, so they went from one that was made by GE to one that was made by Siemens, you'd like to think that they could still do their job. Yeah. But these days, the algorithms that we have can't, yeah. right? If you get kind of even subtle changes in the data, they basically throw their hands up. But, or but, worse, they yeah. very confidently give you the wrong answer. There's, some, there's something about there, – there's so many levels of – I'm gonna. I don't know what word to use. I'm gonna call it intuitive uh, sort of processing. I mean, the the image itself. I'm thinking about how I analyze an image, and you know, say a radiographic image, and there's so much memory and pattern finding, and then also superimposing probabilities given the case. That just the image processing, and then once I process the image, you know, in the context of all those different layers of concerns. Then I start thinking about what it is I'm seeing and what it, and what the probabilities are of it being accurate. Again, based on what I sense is going on in this case, and these these sort of intuitive processings 
are a million miles away from the kinds of things they're putting together to make AI. And that's what kind of drives me a little crazy because I, I think we have undervalued – I don't know what else to call it, but right brain processing, intuition, bodily-based storage of whatever that's in our autonomic system and feeling-based phenomenologies, which are highly different than than cognitive processing, which is where all the focus has been. Am I off base with that? Well, no, I think, I, think, I think you're right in that in some sense our, our, our systems are, are very good at saying, hey, I've seen something just like this before, Right. Um, I've seen something like this before, but I'm just thinking about some of the brain images where you're you're looking and looking and you don't quite see something diagnostic, but you're like feeling that there should be something there and maybe there's something there. Exactly, because the patient presents in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen this before where there wasn't something in there, and if I could just see one little sign of a crescent of something that gives me a clue that makes me think and keeps me going down the the problem-solving pathway, I I, I don't know. It's so different than the way people are constructing these algorithms, seems to me. Well, that's certainly true, but and and people are trying, right? There's, you know, there's there's many people are aware of these challenges, and people are trying very hard to even kind of make these algorithms have kind of a a a more holistic view of data, yeah, right? Yes, but but when you think about it, you know, where are they going to get that data? Well, they're going to get that data from some electronic health record system that's already going to suck, right? Like, I mean, you're you're a clinician, you know how bad all those systems are. Oh my god, unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. And it's like, do you really want that training these systems that are then going to be making decisions for your children? Like, yeah. I don't think no, so. No, 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 um, no. So I think it's, 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 a, it's a ways off. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of automation I think people should be more concerned about are things like, you know, there are a lot of kind of fairly rote um, blue and white color jobs that may be automated, not through, I mean, they'll call it AI because that's what you have to say to make your investors happy. Yeah. But really, it's just kind of simple applications of data and kind of business logic and that sort of thing. But there is, you know, we are getting better at kind of automating more and more. But these sorts of hard questions are, are still far, far away, right? All right. And, well, I'm and, actually glad that you're making me feel better because the kind <laughs> of, well, no, because the enthusiasm and the sort of glib Mm, casualness with people talk about this is, is I, I just I've sort of been shaking my head and then I heard you talking about this and I thought oh well, this is this sounds more accurate to me um, so here we well, are well there's not really a, a, a you know this is this is a new time for people doing kind of a lot of this machine learning work right we haven't really in some sense, none of it's ever even worked well enough that you'd put it in a mission critical system. I, I think right? I bet but you in robotics they're having a lot of good results, and and that has given them some enthusiasm about the kind of learning that's they think is real learning, but it's just sort of movement learning. Well, so they're having some results in robotics, but I think it's important to note that a lot of the a lot of the exciting examples of of machines, you know, competing with humans or whatever, are often in these kind of simulated environments, right? right? On one hand, it's really cool that an algorithm can beat someone at Go. On the other hand, like, Go is a, 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 a game where you see all the pieces at all times, and you really only have to make one decision, which is what is the right next piece to put down, right? So there are these incredibly, it's the same thing with the, the you know, DeepMind's work where they, they beat these Atari games. Right? You're like, you know, video games, especially from a long time ago, are extremely simple. They're hard for humans because you have to react fast and these sorts of things. But the reality is that, like, the kind of reasoning necessary for these things is incredibly primitive. Right. Let, let's, let's, again, I, I'm going to take you down a different path for a second just for the listeners, which is the story of HM. Uh, do you want to sort of sketch that for people so they understand how, what an important case that was and what people learned from that? Great. So, yeah, so HM was a patient who had, um, um, so this is kind of circa 1950s, um, when our understanding of kind of a lot of medical science was, was not where it is today. And he had very bad epilepsy. And, you know, one of the, um, they didn't have any of the, the kind of state-of-the-art anticonvulsant drugs we have these days and whatnot. And so a lot of, um, um, one of the primary methods of treating intractable epilepsy was to kind of go into the brain, figure out where these seizures are starting, right? A seizure is basically the giant electrical storm 
um, that happens, it generally starts at a point called a focus and kind of expands outwards. And they'd find that point that was kind of misbehaving and then cut it out. Because you know, neurophysiology in the middle part of the 20th century involved a lot of cutting. Yes, it um, did. And, and then so some of it had been done by psychiatrists with an ice pick. Which is I mean, a it whole, was, it was, whole it, story. you know, it, we look back on it and it feel in many ways it feels incredibly primitive, right? Oh. Um, but the, um, the, the, with, with HM, they, um, the, the locus of his, his, or the focus of his seizures was, was in this part of the brain that's kind of, you know, if you, if you picture, whenever you see a picture of a human brain, there's that big part on top and that's, that's the neocortex, right? Yeah. And kind of under there, is where the hippocampus lives. Well, it sort of, and, it sort of looks so, like a. It looks like there's sort of like pads that come out to the side, and you got to pull those back to find the hippocampus. Exactly, it's kind of like there are two little bananas in there. Yeah. Like hippocampus is, is is this Greek word for seahorse yeah. because the early neurophysiologists thought that it kind of shaped, was shaped like it a kind seahorse, kind of. Uh, and it kind of is, especially if you if you, like if you look at it like look sagittally, it yeah. totally looks kind of like a, a little squiggly seahorse. Yeah. Um, but so they remove this part of his brain, and when he wakes up, um, you know, they, they, they discover, much to their, their horror, that he's totally lost the ability to form new memories. He has anterograde amnesia, right? So he is kind of forever stuck, basically, in, in 1953. And um, this was very surprising. This was certainly not intended. But from this... Um, we, we, we started to think about, well, maybe that part of the brain is somehow involved in kind of the, the creation of new memories, and maybe creating memories and retrieving them are two different processes, right? They also found other interesting things with HM, like he could learn new motor skills, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe kind of motor or skill-based memories are kind of separate from um, um, kind of more episodic memories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of things that, you know, where 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 did I leave my keys, which right. is one I always struggle with. Um, so the people work with HM. There, there are, there actually, you can hear audio interviews with him. Um, he actually passed away recently, and then the um, one of the main scientists who actually I, I, I took a classroom with at MIT, Sue Corkin, also recently passed away, and, and, and there's been um, kind of a, a, re, a renewed interest in a lot of this work. But, hmm. but this, this, this idea that the hippocampus right, is the kind of seat of new memory formation, right, really took the community by hold, right? Because one of the challenges um, in science is often we just don't know where to look, right? Often we don't even know how to think about kind of taking things apart and, and figuring out what goes where. I mean, a lot of times the, the frustration our physics friends have with, with their, their particle accelerators at like CERN is that basically it all worked. They found the particle they were looking for, and it's kind of like, now what? Yeah. Right? Like, right. Um, and and, and so, so neuroscience often has that problem, too. And so the idea that you could kind of study this part of the brain um, was very interesting. And this led to some work by, um, in particular, by this guy O'Keefe in the mid-'70s, where he was, rec- he was kind of looking at the activity of individual cells in the hippocampus in, I believe it was rats, and he discovered something amazing. He discovered that cells in the hippocampus, right, individual neurons, would only fire, right, would only be active when the animal was in a certain place, right? They, were, they, they had these kind of spatial receptive fields. And this was also kind of amazing, right? Somehow there was some part of the brain that knew that, you know, you were on your couch or you were in your bedroom. And in fact, it was it was exhibited kind of an individual cellular level. It was this kind of fantastic and, and, link. And this is where people started talking about the grandmother cell. Well, so this is the the the, the idea of right. So so um, I think the grandmother cell actually existed before before this. Okay. Um, before this, I okay. mean, people have always been. There's always been this question of kind of what do individual neurons encode? Is it anything important, right? Or is it just in so- collections of neurons? Right, and so yeah. every time we find some part of the brain or some individual cell that appears to kind of like one stimulus more than another, we get very excited, right, in the yeah. neuroscience community. Um, and so the hippocampus appeared to have these cells that kind of fired preferentially in certain locations, right. And in fact, when you move the animal to a new place, those those kind of maps would totally rejigger, right? They'd, they'd change. So in some sense, it was it was like every time the animal went into a new environment, its cells would set up a little map, um, um, what's been termed a cognitive map of that environment. Yeah. Right. And this is very this 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 kind of kicked off this entire trajectory of research, which ultimately led to um, 
people kind of taking apart and understanding that entire circuit, right, ranging from kind of inputs that come from entorhinal cortex into the hippocampus, out to the cortex, um, and, and, and now, now it's like one of the most studied systems in all of history. But it's all because, you know, this one patient, right, um, underwent this one surgery. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of not, I mean, and as a clinician, you, you know, all of these stories about so many drugs are discovered by accident. So oh, many yeah. discoveries happen by accident in medicine. And this is kind of, this is, I think, the, the neuroscientist's most exciting one. Yeah, that and uh, Phileas Gage is another one that people like pointing at for other other reasons. Uh, a lot of sci- a lot of weird things happen in neuroscience that give us quasi insights. All right, I've got to start moving towards wrapping up, Eric. I, I could talk to you all day. I, this stuff fascinates the hell out of me, and and I and it's it's such a massive landscape to to try to get your head around. Uh, Eric's Twitter handle is at stochastician, S-T-O-C-H-A-S-T-I-C-I-A-N. Uh, you, what was the Physicians Committee for Responsible Adults? What was that? Um, I don't know. It says you were something about you with that. I was like, that sounds interesting. All right, forget it then. Now you're at Integrated Direct Marketing, LLC. Is that correct? No, also not. <laughs> this isn't nope. you. All right. So, what are you doing? What's going forward? What what's what is the future? What, what am I interested in now? Yeah. What what's the future, future hold? Where I'm, where are you going? I'm, what, what kind of? If I talk to you in a year, right. what will we be talking about? Well, hopefully, if you talk to me in a year, I will have gotten a faculty job. So, uh, so where goal number one? Where? Um, I don't know. That's the there's a fun kind of. It's a lot like the draft, and that you know we we there's there's a pick day, and and everyone you know we all we all apply to a bunch of different places, and then it all. You know, God sorts it out. Or Where do you want to go? Um, I'd like to go someplace with kind of a good CS program and a good bioengineering program, mm. right? So kind of the usual suspects as well as, as um, you know, so Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, but also, you know, UT Austin has a great program. Uh, U Chicago is a great program. Like there's 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 a lot of places, and, and my wife is, is thankfully willing to kind of end up anywhere. Um, great. So we'll we'll see how that goes, but but a lot of my research these days is very inter- is very focused on this question of kind of how do we make biological measurement better using a lot of these new algorithmic techniques, right? I mean, when you think about technologies like MRI, right? There's no there's no photographic film. There's there's no um, it's all basically because we're 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 using a lot of algorithms to kind of see inside the body, right? And in fact, there's this entire exciting field of computational imaging where people basically build different types of hardware that appear to kind of just be measuring noise, but then you apply some algorithms and you see things no one's ever seen before. I think that's kind of the most exciting place to be right now. So again, to use the MRI analog, we're just looking at electron spins and seeing what energy comes out when you line them all up, and magically images are generated from that. Exactly, exactly. So so, so MRI works by basically detecting the, the... the little magnetic fields generated by the, the, the hydrogens in water. And, and, but they do all this crazy stuff. And, and now, you know, people we work with are developing kind of single-shot rapid acquisition 3D MRI. Wow. Right, where in, in two minutes they get a full 3D image of, of your knee. Would, and, this, would, and this so be, would this sort of thing you're, you're talking about in terms of looking at the noise and making algorithmic sense of it, is this is, – what kind of – is some energy coming off? Is it you – know, from a physics standpoint, what are, you, what are you looking at? From a physics standpoint, so you're generally getting the same kind of signal, right? The same – you know, in this case, it's still like RF from the spins in an MRI. But it's often like very jumbled, right? You can kind of um, – um, um, a lot of what we're trying to do is – kind of untangle it, right? So instead of instead of having to get kind of a perfect image out, we can get kind of a really crappy image and then kind of fix it up by using all these clever tricks. So it's ra- you're um, looking at radio frequency electron spin stuff still. Exactly. But exactly. you're looking but, but there there But you must be looking points, at it in a dynamic other- way, like it's active somehow. Exactly. So yeah. there's, there's the, in fact, you can kind of get these, you can get these spins to kind of sing and all these interesting kind of choreographed patterns, Ooh, right? And it yeah. used to be that a lot of the choreography was just, you know, you had to do very simple things, right? They had to basically be doing a can-can and lockstep. Huh. But now we can get them to kind of twist themselves into all these complicated ways where you pack more information 
kind of in every little bit that you're getting out. Do you do you publish this for lay public anywhere? I mean, is there a website or anything people can? Follow? Oh yeah, yeah. So there's, there's. I mean, and this is this is that that my my work is kind of in that general framework. A lot of the all of the MRI stuff comes out of, of Mickey Lustig's group here at, at at Berkeley. He does his group does amazing work. But we're we're kind of we're we're you can imagine we're one level above that where we're kind of trying to do the the math and write the code that makes all of that work. Is again, is there a specific website? Would it be EricJonas.com? Yeah, so if you go to my if you go to my website, you can you can find links to a lot of this. All right. Well, listen, I I really appreciate you spending a little time and letting me pick your brain a bit about this stuff. This is a million miles from where I I live in my day and day out life, but I've always been interested in this stuff since my undergraduate days. And uh, I I heard you speak about it. I was rashly speaking, right? Is that the, was that the podcast? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I and I will I suspect I want to talk to you again. You know, as time goes on, just to see where you're going with all this stuff because I I feel like some sort of major insight is coming. And, and I don't even know what it's going to be or what it could lead us to conclude about brain function. But I, I just feel like we've been barking up the wrong tree for a long time. And your work and work like that to me feels like something that's going to – I don't want to even say something as simple as crack the code because that's it's something more than that. It's just it's going to be some sort of observation that helps us understand what this thing is. It's in our under our calvarium. That's that's the hope. Fingers yeah. crossed. Well, I, I'm, I'm I'm pulling for you. All right, is there anything else you want to tell me before I let you go? No, I think that's about it. I think we've said enough. All right, Eric Jonas, thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right, nice talking to you. Take care, Bye. and uh, we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.